and I just realized that I was not recording at all. So, uh, sorry, Mr. Gabe. He's going to be mad at me. All right. Genesis 26, verse 1. Now there was a famine in the land, aside from the previous famine that happened in Abraham's days. So Isaac went to King Abimelech of the Philistines to Gerar. Then Adonai appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land about which I tell you. Live as an outsider in this land, and I will be with you and bless you. For to you and to your seed I give all these lands, and I will confirm my pledge that I swore to Abraham your father. I will multiply your seed like the stars of the sky, and I will give your seed all these lands. And in your seed all the nations of the earth will continually be blessed, because Abraham listened to my voice and kept my charge, my mitzvot, my decrees, and my instructions. So Isaac stayed in Gerar. Now the men of the place asked about his wife. So he said, She is my sister, because he was afraid to say, My wife, or else the men of the place would kill me on account of Rebecca, because she's good looking. So we've seen this situation before, right? Um, yes, yeah, it's, it's the third time this has happened in the past few chapters. And um, when Abraham, during that first famine, went to Egypt, he pulled Sarah aside and said, When the people of the land see you, uh, they'll kill me and take you as their wife because you're very beautiful. Therefore, you should tell them you're my sister so that they won't kill me, right? And that's a very rough paraphrase, but it's essentially what happened. And uh, when Abraham went to Gerar, a few chapters later, though, he told her the exact same thing, so to say you're my sister, right? And now here's Isaac telling Rebecca, hey, check this out. I've got this really cool trick that my dad taught me. Just say you're my sister, and you know it'll work out. It works every time, right? So that's the strange thing, right? Because... Clearly, Isaac would have had to hear this story from his father, because that's like such a crazy idea. Who comes up with that? But also, if Abraham had told that story to Isaac, he would have told them how it ended, right? Like how Pharaoh found out he was tricking him and drove him out of the land, or maybe just told them the good parts, like how Abimelech um, and Pharaoh gave him sheep and cattle and servants of thousands of shekels for compensation, right? But Isaac probably sat there rubbing his hands together like, oh man, this is a good plot. But, um, I don't know, maybe Abraham hadn't told him anything at all, and it's kind of like a like-father-like-son type thing. But, and we have to remember now, though, um, with Abraham and Sarah, it was a half-truth when he said, she is my sister, because they actually came from the same father, but not the same mother, which would have made them, like, half-ish siblings, but it's, it's kind of hazy at best. Um, but Rebecca and Isaac, they were technically distant cousins, and that kind of sort of makes them like brother and sister and Hebraic thought. But still, like, why did they do this, right? Why, why do we see this over and over again? Um, I think we can get wrapped up in the why do they do this and what's the purpose of these guys doing this to their wives. But I think what God would rather have us do is focus on the brides in these situations. Because the bride, in the first case, Sarah, and the second, Rebecca tends to be a picture of the bride of Messiah, which is Israel and us. And so when we do that, we discover something interesting. When you read these stories, you see that the king of the land, which in the first case was Pharaoh, and the second and the third one, it's Abimelech, probably different Abimelechs, um, they come to the realization of, you know, this is a married woman. But they each come to that conclusion in a different way. So the first time when Abraham went to Egypt, during the famine, how did Pharaoh come to the conclusion that Sarah was not Abraham's sister, but was in fact his wife? Does anybody remember? 
Yeah, okay. So let's go back to that chapter and uh, read it really quick. I believe it is um, Genesis chapter 12. Genesis 12, verse 14, where it starts. Okay, let's see. When Abraham came to Egypt, the Egyptians did see that the woman was very beautiful. Indeed, Pharaoh's officials saw her, and they raved about her to Pharaoh. Then the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house, but Abraham was treated well for her sake, and he got sheep, cattle, male donkeys, male and female slaves, female donkeys, and camels. But Adonai struck Pharaoh and his household with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What's this that you did to me? Why didn't you tell me that she is your wife? Why did you say, She is my sister, so that I took her to be my wife? Now, here is your wife. Take and go. Then Pharaoh instructed men concerning him, and they expelled him with his wife and everything that belonged to him. So, how do you find this out? Um, verse 17 says that Adonai struck Pharaoh and his household with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So God sent plagues, right, against Pharaoh and his household. God plagues Pharaoh, right? Is there like some little, uh, some little connection, some, another time where God's bride was in Egypt and Pharaoh tried to take her and God brought all kinds of plagues, right? It's in the next book over, right, in Exodus when Israel found themselves in Egypt as slaves. And, um, and God sent Moses, and along with him, plagues of all sorts to let Pharaoh know that, under no uncertain terms, that these people are mine and they are not yours. So in fact, in Exodus 11, verse 1, it says, Now Adonai had said to Moses, I will bring one more plague upon Pharaoh and on Egypt. After that, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go... He will surely drive you out altogether from here. In other words, Pharaoh will realize, all right, I need to let these people go back to their husband, to their bridegroom. And that's kind of similar. How, what happened to Abraham? You know, um, Pharaoh gave, gave him all this stuff and said, get out of here. Same as in Exodus, when Pharaoh's like, take your cattle and your gold and everything, just get out of here, right? So now before we move to the next story, the second time this happened, when Abraham, Abraham and Sarah went to Gerar, the place that Isaac and Rebekah are now in chapter 26. Do you remember how God revealed to Abimelech that they were not brother and sister? Mr. Wright? A dream. Yes. Very good. So let's go over there and uh, rewind a couple chapters to Genesis 20 and take a look at this. Let's see. 20 verse 1. Then Abraham journeyed from there to the land of the Negev and settled between Kadesh and Shur. While he was dwelling as an outsider in Gerar, Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, She is my sister. So King Abimelech of Gerar sent for and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream at night and said to him, Behold, you are as good as dead because of the woman whom you have taken, since she is a married woman. Now Abimelech had not come near her, so he said, my lord, will you slay a nation even though innocent? Didn't he say to me, she's my sister? And she herself even said, he's my brother. I did this with integrity of my heart and guiltless, guiltlessness of my hands. And then God said to him in a dream, yes, I myself knew that you did this with integrity of your heart. So I, yes, I myself prevented you from sinning against me. That is why I did not allow you to touch her. So now... Return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, and let him pray for you, and you will live. But if you do not return her, 
know that you will surely die, you and all who are yours. So there's a few interesting things here as well, right? He says, I know you did this with integrity of your heart, right? You didn't know any better. And he says, I kept you from sinning against me. And God also tells Abimelech, I did not let you touch her. So he's saying basically, Abimelech, I've been operating in your house and in your life, and you didn't even know it. In fact, um, I'm sending this dream right now telling you all this stuff so that, you know, you can act on it. And this is your chance to act. And if you, if you act properly, you will live. If you don't, you die. It's your call, basically. So we see a king here where God's operating in his life, and he has no idea. He has no idea of the wrong that he's done, and no idea that God's been preventing him from doing certain things, and no idea that God is protecting this woman that he's taken into his house. And he has no idea about any of this, right? So this reminds me of the second exile that Israel was in. First, they were exiled to Egypt in Exodus, right? But what was the second place they were exiled to? Babylon, yeah. So they were, they were exiled to Babylon for 70 years. And uh, do you remember how they got out of Babylon? Well, remember the Babylonian exile? This was around the time that um, it was happening with Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar and all of that. Um, but while Israel was in Babylon, the Babylonian Empire was overthrown by Persia. And they sort of accumulated Israel under their rule, right? It's like whenever a company takes over another company and they get all of their assets as well, it just kind of merges. So over time, the Persian king Cyrus was raised up. And you can read about it in Isaiah 44 and 45. So let's go ahead and let's turn there really quick. Isaiah 44, starting in uh, verse 24. Let's see. You know that yeah, yeah. This this is a really cool story. Um, let's see. It shows you that God can change the whole picture mm-hmm. like that. Yeah. Change rulers lift them up, put them down, but He can make them. Mm-hmm. And if you want to read the historical side of all this that's happening, um, a really cool two cool books are um, the Book of Ezra, the first couple chapters of Ezra, and then um, Nehemiah as well. They're both really good books for this, but uh, Isaiah 44, 24 starts with this. Thus says Adonai, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb. I am Adonai, maker of all things, stretching out the heavens alone, spreading the earth abroad by myself, causing the omens of boasters to fail, making fools of diviners, turning wise men backward and making their knowledge foolish, while confirming the word of his servant, fulfilling the counsel of his messengers, saying of Jerusalem, she will be lived in, and of the cities of Judah, they will be built, and I will raise up their ruins. While saying to the deep, be dry, I will dry up your rivers. So while saying of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he shall fulfill all my purpose. While saying to Jerusalem, you will be built, and to the temple, your foundation will be laid. So the really cool thing about this chapter is this happens about a hundred years before Cyrus was born. That just gives you a little bit of a perspective of things and how God is working things out ahead of time, right? So continue on in uh, chapter 45, verse, um, verse 1. It says, Thus says Adonai to his anointed, Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped, to subdue nations before him, to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him, so that gates may not be shut. 
I will go before you and make crooked places straight. I will shatter bronze doors and cut through iron bars. I will give you treasures of darkness and hidden riches of secret places, so you may know that I am Adonai, the God of Israel, who calls you by your name. For the sake of Jacob, my servant, and Israel, my chosen one, I have also called you by name. I have given you a title of honor, though you have not known me. I am Adonai, there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I will strengthen you, though you have not known me, so they may know from the rising of the setting of the sun to the setting of the sun that there is no one besides me. I am Adonai, there is no other. So God basically says about Cyrus, right? He says, uh, I'm controlling the events of your life. You know, I'm going to steer your decisions. And I'm going to use you and bless you greatly for the sake of my servant Jacob and to set my people free. So just like Abimelech is used and steered by God and has no idea about it, God uses Cyrus and steers him. And this is decided 100 years before he was born. So he really has no idea, right? So but why am I talking about Cyrus? Because Cyrus has this wonderful idea to release the Jews back to Jerusalem after their exile, right? He ended the exile and set them back with the order to rebuild their city and their temple, and he funded the entire thing. He has this great idea, right? Well, not really, because it was God's idea. Just, he just played it out through Cyrus. See, in the first exile, Pharaoh drove out all Israel in a fit of fear and anger. And the same thing happened with Abraham and Sarah, with the Pharaoh in that land. Um, Pharaoh drove them out of Egypt because he was sick of the plagues. In the second exile, Cyrus sends Israel out with plentiful gifts and supplies. And we see the same thing with Abimelech the second time. So if you want to meet, read more about Cyrus, like I said, read the book of Ezra, specifically chapter 1. Uh, it takes place maybe about 100 and something years after the prophecy in Isaiah 44. But back to our main storyline, let's, let's recap here. So we see the first story with Abraham and Sarah and Pharaoh and how that may have been prophetic to the Egyptian exile, right? And then we see Abraham... Sarah and Abimelech, and how it may have been prophetic to the Babylonian slash Persian exile, and how he would work through Cyrus, right? Well, what comes next? Um, we get to this chapter that we're studying here today, Genesis 26. This time it's with Isaac and Rebekah, Abraham's son and his wife, who told Abimelech that she was his sister. And you have to wonder, you know, what Abimelech is thinking. If this is the same Abimelech, you think, like, didn't this guy's dad say the same thing about his wife? Like, you know? But I guess maybe um, if you remember, Abimelech in this chapter does not take Rebecca for himself. He just let them be. And some of the men of the city uh, started asking about her. And so let's, uh, let's take a look and read on and see what Abimelech does with that situation. So let's see how the bride is revealed to Abimelech in this instance. So Genesis, this is 26, leaving off where we uh, stopped, which is verse 8. <clears throat> now after he had been there for a long time, King Abimelech of the Philistines peered down through the window and saw, behold, Isaac caressing his wife, Rebekah. The King James Version um, has an interesting translation. It says Isaac was sporting with his wife, Rebekah. <laughs> it sounds like they're playing ping pong or maybe volleyball or something, but... Um, I, don't, I don't really like how it says caressing here, or sporting either for that matter. Um, 
The original Hebrew of this verse says this. Behold, Yitzhak, which is Isaac, Metzahek. In literal English, that's Isaac, whose name means laughter, was laughing with his wife. But everyone in the city knew exactly what was going on, right? Because they were acting like a husband and a wife should act in private whenever there's not somebody looking through a window to see them, right? Yeah, well, what does Abimelech say here? If we read on verse 9, it says, So Abimelech called Isaac and said, So in fact, she's your wife. Now how could you say she's my sister? Isaac said to him, Because I said, or else I might be killed because of her. Then Abimelech said, What is it that you've done to us? One of the people could have easily slept with your wife, and you would have brought guilt on us. So how did Abimelech find out that the bride in this case is indeed a bride? He saw the affection and the love between the husband and the wife, right? Between the bride and the bridegroom. And here's a little fact about Israel. They are now in their third exile, not counting the, um, the events of Hanukkah with the, the Greeks, uh, because the temple was not actually destroyed in that instance. Um, it's counting it kind of starting the exile when the people are overthrown, and then ending when the temple is rebuilt. Uh, in the end of the Egyptian exile, you know, they built the tabernacle, and eventually the first temple, it was destroyed, Babylonian exile, and then all of a sudden they rebuilt the second temple, and then it was destroyed. So now they're in their third exile. Most people call it the Roman exile, because it was mainly the Romans that took over and oppressed them, right? But uh, we know that they're still in exile because they haven't rebuilt the temple yet. It's as simple as that, really. But all of this to say, I think the day is coming when the whole world will realize that this people really is actually a bride. And how will they know? Well, they're going to see the affection between the son of the father and his bride. The world doesn't realize it yet, but the time is coming when Israel... And remember, we're all grafted into Israel. They don't become part of the Gentile church. We become part of Israel through Yeshua. That's how we you know, become part of the bride. But the day is coming when the world will begin to see God's love for the people of Israel and their love for God. And more specifically, their love for the son. Just like Rebecca loved the son, Isaac, the son of Abraham. There's love from God to the people of Israel. And the world is just starting to take notice, right? If they just look out the window. So... Now, all of this is just a, a possibility, right? And it's a cool little insight, but it might be a little bit of a stretch. Um, but this theory is it's a little bit further supported by the rest of the chapter. So let's read on and, um, and see what it says. So picking up in uh, 26, verse 12 through 18. Then Isaac sowed in that land, and in that year reaped a hundredfold. Adonai blessed him, and the man became great, and continued to become greater until he became very great. He acquired livestock of sheep and livestock of cattle and numerous servants. Then the Philistines envied him. All the wells that his father's servants had dug in the days of his father Abraham, the Philistines, stopped up and filled with dirt. So Abimelech said to Isaac, Go away from us, for you are much more powerful than us. So Isaac departed from there, camped in the valley of Gerar, and dwelled there. Then Isaac dug again the wells of water that had been dug in the days of his father, Abraham. The Philistines had stopped them up after Abraham's death. He gave them the same names that his father had given them. So I'm going to pause there for a second and go off on a little tangent here. Um, with these wells that we're reading about here, 
there seems to be kind of this, this cool little picture for us, right? On a small scale, say um, you were raised, you were raised in a godly home, right? By godly parents, and you drank from their wells when you were a child, but now you need to redig them yourself, right? You need to do the work that they did. And, you know, you can't just, like, you can't inherit your faith from your parents. So it's okay while you're a child to kind of piggyback a little bit, but at some point along the way, it has to become your faith and not just your parents. So you must take ownership of it if you really want it. And if your kid comes to a point in their life where they start to question things, that's not necessarily a bad thing. It just means that they're starting to to process, of, you know, they're starting the process of taking ownership of their own faith. So in fact, if your child goes their entire life not questioning things, that might be a sign that they'll be uh, a little bit maybe spiritually weak because they never did the work that you did. So you just have to hope that you did a good enough job teaching them when they were young so that when they do start questioning things, they don't just give up and join the world's beliefs. Um, but remember this, it's 10 times easier to redig a well that has been filled in than to start from scratch and have to break the hard soil. So if you were raised by godly parents, you have an edge on those who weren't. Just remember that and uh, raise your kids up in that way as well. So anyway, I'm going to go ahead and continue on with the, our main story here and pick up in verse 19. Let's see. Then Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found a well of living water there. But the shepherds of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's shepherds, saying, The water is ours. So he named the well Quarrel, because they quarreled with him. Then he dug another well, and they quarreled over it too. So he named it Accusation. Then he moved from there and dug another well, and they did not quarrel over it. So he named it Wide Spaces and said, Because now Adonai has created wide spaces for us, and we will be fruitful in the land. So to paraphrase what I just read, Isaac digs up two wells, and the people living there quarreled over the ownership of the water. So Isaac goes and he gives the wells names that were themed after this, you know, uh, after this strife. The first one is Esek, which means to quarrel. And the second is Sitna, which is like an accusation in English. So this is actually the, the word Sitna. It's where we get the name Satan, which means like the accuser or the adversary. So, you know, there was, you can tell there was some trouble at these first two wells. But then he digs up the third well, and it says there is peace there, right? And he names it uh, Rehoboth, or Rehoboth, which is, um, it's like Rehoboth, you know, like that super peaceful town we have right next to us. Um, but Rehoboth actually means wide places. So, like, how is all, how is all of this connected? Um, you know, when I look at this passage, or, sorry, when, I was talking to Patrick. Um, when I look at this passage, I, uh, I tend to think, hmm, well, well, well. <laughs> That's why I was uh, nodding to Patrick. But, um, <laughs> um, but the conclusion that several sages have come to is this. The three wells represent the three temples. The first temple is built, and then there's quarreling, right? And then eventually destruction. Same with the second temple. But when Isaac digs the third well, and after the third temple is built, there is peace. Of course, the third temple has not been built yet, but God has already made the blueprints. And his plan for that temple is peace. Once we finally marry in, God says we will never be separated again, and we'll dwell with him for the rest of eternity, right? So again, that might be a little bit of a stretch, 
But it's really interesting to see how that plays out directly after the last chapter. Here's the thing about the Torah, that this is completely different than any other section of the Bible. God himself wrote it, right? And he wove little secrets into every single verse. And if you read the first five books of the Bible as purely a story with the commands tied in as just our law and, you know, history, then you're only getting about 50% of the final product. It would be like ordering a delicious hot fudge sundae with a cherry on top, right? And then you eat the cherry and then you throw the rest away. But yes, the cherry on top is delicious. It's the cherry on top. Unless you get those fake plasticky ones. But the ice cream, right? That's in the hot fudge. That's what that's the real substance. That's what you really that, that's what you're there for. You see, reading about the history of the world and Israel is it's phenomenal. It's amazing. And so are all, so are all of the commands that God put in place for us. But if you don't see the rest, you're, you're missing out a little bit. So what's actually going on in the Torah? What's happening in these first five books of the Bible um, under the surface, right? So under the surface, it's packed with everything you could possibly ask for. Like, it has prophecies and foreshadowing and parallel stories along with other things. And the entire gospel displayed dozens of times. And overall, it's the heart of God, right? Every verse in the Torah is absolutely critical. And God put it there for a reason. He left out the things that were unimportant. Sometimes we tend to focus on those, you know, wow, what's going on here? Why do, why do we have an 80-year gap? But if God didn't put it in there, then we don't have to worry about that, right? But he included everything that was important, even the weird chapters that don't make a lot of sense, like this one. And sometimes you have to take a step back, read it, and then do that five times over again, right? Other things we may never understand, but that's okay. But that's the reason I'm glad that I was given this chapter to teach on, because it forced me to dissect a section of scripture that I thought was weird, and usually just kind of read through it quickly, right? So when I took the time to stop and smell the roses, I not only gained a different point of view, but also of, you know, a different point of view of this chapter, but also of the whole Bible, really. So any, anyway, since I'm a... Oh, I got a little bit of time, okay. Well, I'm going to go, I'm going to go ahead and uh, finish reading the rest of the chapter, starting in a... 23, verse 23. He went up from there to Beersheba. Adonai appeared to him that night and said, I am the God of your father Abraham. Do not be afraid, for I am with you, and I will bless you and multiply your seed for the sake of Abraham my servant. So he built an altar there and called on the name of Adonai. He pitched his tent there, and Isaac's servants hollowed out a well there. Now Abimelech went to him from Gerar, along with Ahuzat, his friend, and Picol, the commander of his army. Isaac said to them, Why have you come to me, since you hate me and sent me away from you? They said, We've clearly seen that Adonai has been with you, so we said, Let there now be an agreement between us, between us and you, and let us make a covenant with you, that you will do us no harm, just as we haven't touched you, and just as we did nothing to you but good, and sent you away in shalom. Now you are blessed by Adonai. Then he made a feast for them, and they ate and drank. Then they got up early in the morning and made a pledge, each to his brother. Then Isaac sent them away, and they departed from him in shalom. Now it happened that on the day Isaac's servants came and told him about the well that they dug, and said to him, We've found water, so he called it Pledge. That's why the city's name is Beersheba to this day. 
when Esau was 40 years old, he took as wife Judith, the daughter of Be'eri, the Hittite, and Basemath, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite. But they caused a bitterness of spirit for Isaac and Rebekah. And right there, at the end of that chapter, it kind of essentially, it's the end of Isaac's main character plot. It doesn't have a really long run. Um, after this, it really shifts the focus onto Jacob, and then later Joseph. Yes, you have a question? Let's see. Pledge. But, um, like I was saying, the it's kind of weird. This is a weird chapter because it's Isaac doesn't really have a long run here. It goes, you know, from Abraham, and there's a couple of weird choppy chapters with Isaac, and then it jumps along to Jacob. Um, and the last thing I kind of wanted to talk about today is our faith. Um, out of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who would you say seemed to have the easiest life here on earth out of the three, judging by what the scriptures tell us, the information we get? Probably Isaac, right? There's like a very few amount of chapters that things happened to him. Um, yeah, exactly. Um, and his recorded life doesn't seem to be crazier than Abraham or Jacob. Uh, these are the, I'll tell you the main exactly. bad things. That, yeah, well, but I mean, he didn't do it, you know. But, like, these are all the main bad things that happened to him. Um, Ishmael was born, and he bullied Isaac until his father got rid of him. That's, you know, that's, that's pretty bad. But then he was going to be sacrificed, but that didn't end up happening. Then his mother died while he was still fairly young. And, of course, that was, that's terrible. But Sarah was pretty old when he was born, so it's kind of expected that that would happen anyway, right? Um, then Abim- then uh, Isaac had this tiny little issue with Abimelech, which was completely his fault. That's not something that happened to him. He did this, you know. Um, but then Abimelech continued to bless him abundantly after that. And then Isaac's wife gave birth to two sons who were sworn enemies. And lastly, he was tricked by Jacob into giving him the firstborn blessing. So it's, it's you know, um, it's, it's, it's pretty bad, but... It's nothing compared to what Abraham and Jacob had to go through. You know, I mean, even Jacob having to work all those years for Laban, was it? Yeah, that was, that's pretty terrible. And that's just like, you know, a 14-year period of his life. Yeah, that's, um, overall, Isaac probably had the easiest time here. Um, and those guys, all of them, all three of them, though, they had pretty rough lives. And why is that? Why, do, why are they in such constant torture their entire lives? Well, you know, after that, they were, they were greatly blessed and they became the fathers of our faith. And you see, God ordains a certain amount of difficulty to come into our lives. This is called spiritual testing. And it's good for us. It's good discipline. Spiritual testing is like, uh, it's like working out by lifting weights, right? It's difficult while you're going through it and it'll leave you sore and in pain. But once that wears off, your, your muscles will knit themselves back together and you are stronger after that. It's the same concept. So here's where it gets interesting, though. Every single one of us has our faith tested. It's just going to happen. Sorry. But there are people out there that walk around, you know, they spit out scripture verses left and right, and they have the fancy bumper stickers on their cars. But the moment their faith is tested, they react with anger and patience and frustration, and they give up. In other words, they behave exactly the way a non-believer would behave. 
So is that you? Don't answer that. No. <laughs> but what exactly is spiritual testing? And why do we have to go through it, right? Uh, I've heard time and time again, like, why doesn't God just make us better, like, since he has the power to do so? Well, I'm going to break down the concept of testing and show you a cool insight that might, you may have never thought about in the form of a parable. So I realized a while ago, the reason why the concept of spiritual testing makes so much sense to me in the Bible is um, because spiritual testing is almost always compared to refining precious metals. If, have you ever heard the, the phrase, trial by fire? Well, that's, that's where this comes from. So here's some examples, right? I have a couple verses here. Zechariah 13, verse 9. And I will bring the third part through the fire, refine them as silver is refined, and test them as gold is tested. Jeremiah 6, 27. I have made you a tester of metals in my people the ore, that you may observe and test their ways. Malachi 3, 2 through 3. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a smelter and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, so that they may present to the Lord offerings in righteousness. And lastly, Isaiah 1.25. I will also turn my hand against you and will smelt away your dross as with lye and will remove all your alloy. So what does all this mean? Like fire and silver, alloys, dross. Like what's going on, right? Well, I'm glad you asked because... If you don't know much about me, I'm not a legendary Bible scholar that can beat anyone in a battle of wits, you know. Um, but I do, however, specialize in one hobby that I've had an interest in ever since I was a little kid, and that's blacksmithing. So if you ever heard one of my teachings before, you know I always find some sneaky way to put in a little parable about metal or fire and that sort of thing, because I know a lot about it, and I'm comfortable um, sharing that knowledge, you know, and how it relates. So that being said, um, here's how the metal refinement process works, and also how it relates to spiritual testing. So, in its basic form, refining metal consists of removing impurities from a metal. So I've got some, uh, I've got some props here. Um, and we're going to start with this, this chunk of metal I have here. So, uh, for those of you that can't see it or online, this is a, this is raw iron ore that I took from a rock, um, from Providence Canyon, actually. Actually, it was, it was Mariah that took it, so <laughs> don't call the cops on me. <laughs> but, you know, it's, it's, it's very beautiful, but that's about it, right? Like, you know what I use it for? I, um, I set it up on a shelf in my bedroom, and I look at it from time to time. I can't really use it for anything else, because it's, it's not pure iron, right? About half of it is rock, or different metal, or flint, or petrified sand, or just junk. Um, so let's assume this rock is you. Well, not, you know, not junk, but not, not you, but the average person, okay? the average believer. So you might be a great person by human standards, but in order to dwell with God in eternity, he will not let you, let you enter with all of this junk mixed in. He wants something that looks like this. And this is actually a coin, a bar of pure silver that I have. It's been refined several times in order to clean out all the stuff that we saw from the iron ore. However, here's a cool little side note. This silver is not 
100% pure. It's actually 99.99%. And this is because with our human technology, we can't purify metal to 100% pure. Similarly, our humans, us humans are never 100% perfect. Only God is, right? When Yeshua came to earth, he was like the, the bar of silver from birth, except that tiny 0.01% of junk wasn't there. Just a cool thing to take notice of. And also, here's a cool little uh, party trick. With silver, the way you can tell if it's pure... Wait, hang on a second. I don't know if you can hear that ring, but... It's got a nice little ring to it, right? That's what they say. Apparently, that's why they make uh, bells out of silver, because it rings very nicely. But anyway, how do we get this iron here to look like this silver? Well, it all starts with a harsh environment. The metal rock mixture is placed into what's called a crucible, which is like, it's like a, a thick stone cup, um, and it doesn't melt because it's, it's rock, and rock has a really high melting temperature. So the metal rock mixture is placed into the crucible, and the heat is added. And there's usually a constant swirling flame surrounding the crucible, which creates an environment meant to totally trap the metal in heat. And let's imagine the metal is a human, right? And the fire is events happening in the human's life. So they're going about their day as if everything is normal, and then all of a sudden they lose their job, and then their dog dies, and then a family member tells them that they have cancer, and then their debit card gets hacked, and they lose all the money in their bank account, right? Well, that would be too crazy of a coincidence for all that stuff to, to happen around the same time, right? Well, that's right, because it is. It's not a coincidence. And I guarantee that anyone in this room that has been a believer for more than a year, that they have experienced something similar to that. And maybe not nearly as drastic, but one thing after another, right? Just piling up until you can barely take it anymore. And that is the concept of the fire surrounding the crucible. So here's the next step. After the metal has been through the ringer, it melts. And it can't hold its shape anymore under those conditions, and it turns from a solid into a liquid. This sounds like, um, kind of like all hope is lost, right? Well, no, that's not right, because when the metal melts, it's contained inside the crucible. You see, the crucible symbolizes God's hands, since God protects us from total destruction. But do you remember uh, Job? How God, God told Satan, he was like, do whatever you want to him, only do not take his life. But without that crucible holding the metal in there, the metal would just melt and spill all over the place. So here's another cool thing. Every metal has different melting temperatures. Like aluminum melts at 1,221 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, copper is 1,763. And titanium, um, like the implants that people get in their knees, is 3,034 degrees Fahrenheit, and tungsten carbide, which is the metal my ring is made out of, it's the toughest metal on Earth, it melts at 5,198. And that's kind of hard to picture, but if it gives you a, a, a picture, I think lava is typically around 4,000-ish degrees, so lava wouldn't really be hot enough to melt tungsten. Um, it's a little interesting uh, side note, but this is related to how much testing each human can handle. So some people may be like spiritual machines, you know, just like able to withstand a ton of pressure, whereas some may be more sensitive. And uh, we don't have to worry, though, because 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says this about testing. No testing 
has taken hold of you except what is common to mankind. But God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tested beyond what you can handle. But with the test, he will also provide a way of escape so you will be able to endure it. So in other words, let's say uh, Jeremy may be like tungsten carbide, right? And be able to endure torture. And I might be like aluminum or tin and break down when I drop an ice cream cone, right? So. <laughs> but either way, God wouldn't let me go through the same torture that Jeremy could endure if I couldn't handle it. Like, similarly, um, you wouldn't raise the fire to melt aluminum at the temperature that tungsten melts because it would just destroy it. So if you're a tough person, I'm sorry, because your spiritual life is probably going to be pretty tough. But through all of this, there's a, a silver lining, no pun intended. Because when the metal melts, all of the mixed-in ingredients separate because they have different melting temperatures, right? So the iron ore we were talking about earlier has a lower melting temperature than rock and flint, and so it would melt. But all of the unmelted junk would just float to the top. All of this stuff that floats up is not iron, but it's called slag or dross, like what we were reading about in Isaiah. And it's, it basically is trash that doesn't belong with the iron. So the blacksmith at this point would take a rod of, of graphite, which is like, um, uh, well, you know, pencil lid. And um, it's a big old thick rod that he would take. And he would dip it in. And he'd scrape all the sides of the crucible. And he would scoop out all of the slag or all the dross. And then the slag sticks to the graphite, and then it can be removed from the metal. So the blacksmith, in our instance, is God. In the graphite rod, you can think of it as Yeshua, who entered the harsh environment in our lives and scooped out all that junk, which caused it to cling to him so it could be removed, right? And then what you're left with in the crucible is that chunk of iron minus the rock, flint, and petrified sand. So the blacksmith then takes the crucible and pours the metal out into a mold, which could be some kind of a tool or like a ring, or electrical wiring, for example, or even a piece of a machine that we need in order for the entire machine to function. So that's like us, you know? After God refines us, then it's a whole lot easier to be put to use of where you need to go. But remember this, though, after the metal has been refined, it's only about 95% pure most of the time. So there's still microscopic bits of junk in there that, that take like more than one refinement process to get rid of. So if you just went through a major spiritual test and made it out the other end, that's, that's really good, that's great. But there will be more. Here on Earth, we can never be 100% pure like the silver, um, how it's 99.99%, but yet God will keep refining us for the rest of our lives, right? We can't be pure, but he's going to try. So you see, God can use anyone at any time, but man, it's, like, it's, it's so much easier to use someone after they're refined and function more like a metal than like a rock. And so to come to full circle, that is the reason that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had such difficult lives because they were constantly being refined so that God would have the foundation of his people be as pure as possible. So don't be afraid when you experience spiritual testing because it's just part of being a follower of Yeshua, right? And I'm going to close with... Um, a verse in James, it's James chapter 1, verse 2 and through 4, which says this. Consider it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. 
And let endurance have its perfect work, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So that being said, let's, uh, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come to you in prayer today, thanking you for our lives and for the various trials we face in our lives. Even though they are not pleasant to experience, we are glad that you care about us enough to make us better and to strengthen us. We pray that you would give us all the strength we need to endure our trials, and that we would trust you and you alone when it comes to spiritual testing. We thank you for your desire to dwell with us, and we ask that you would make us a people you would be pleased to dwell with. We pray to you and thank you for all these things, in Yeshua's mighty name, amen. Amen. All right, so I guess that's about it. Does anybody have any questions before we move on? Ms. Suzanne. Can I have the microphone? Yes. In studying about Cyrus, one of the things that I learned a long time ago, and many of you may have heard this too, is that there is a tradition. This is not in the Bible, but there is a tradition that Cyrus's mother was Queen Esther. And if that's true, that would also explain his tender heart toward the Jewish people, ultimately. I mean, you know, yes, God definitely inspired him to do that. There's no question. But I thought that was kind of cool. And then the other parallel was that, in turn, Esther is related to Saul, King Saul. And why that's significant is to think about it when... Esther came in and did what she did under the inspiration of God, even though God's name is never mentioned in the book. That gave those people, Haman and his group, um, you know, a good kick. Well, later, what did Saul do? He spared Agag. Agag was the descendant of Haman and caused lots of problems, as we know, to the Jewish people. So it's kind of interesting, though. That was, yeah, it's very interesting. Uh, and Cyrus is a very cool, um, very cool topic to study because uh, it's like it kind of shows you that there's, while the the Bible is focused around Israel, there's these other these third party members that not technically part of Israel. Like, I wouldn't consider Cyrus. You know, he didn't go with the people. But they're there, they love them, and they want to help them out. And it's really interesting to see that over and over again, because like, it's, it's kind of a unique concept that you, know, you don't see, because in most stories, anybody that's not Israel hates Israel. And so it's, it's I don't know, that's a, that's a pretty cool little concept. But anybody else have any questions or comments? All right. Well, we will um, go ahead and do the, the blessing of the, the fruit of the vine and do the bread.